So, hello. I should give you some background here. When I was when I was looking at passages with this Steve some weeks ago, we knew it was right that to look at these chapters of Matthew uh, over a number of weeks. So from sort of where we were last week, 18 through to 23-ish. Um, and, and twice, I think it was, that Steve came up with a scheme of sermons which did not include this particular passage. And twice I put it back in, so I guess it's no surprise that he bowled it to me to be the one that preaches on this particular passage today. Now, I know that divorce and remarriage is one of the more difficult subjects in the Bible because we all have examples in our own lives of people who have been particularly hurt by the church's historic teaching and varied practice on this. It's clearly not God's ideal to be married and then for that marriage to end. But then there are lots of things which are not God's ideal, which he's offered us ways to cope with. So in setting this passage in the context of Matthew, I find it intriguing, to say the least, that the passage before is about forgiveness and thus reconciliation, and the passage afterwards is about attitudes to children. But as we get ourselves into this particular passage, just remember for me that the difference between every married relationship and any other relationship is sex. Even in today's culture, once you're married, the acceptable thing is to only have sex with your own partner. And um, it's, just keep that in mind, that that's the one difference between a spouse-to-spouse relationship and every other relationship in life. So in terms of this particular passage, I think there's a number of things that we need to um, just pick up on and notice as we go through it. Uh, So the Pharisees came in order to test Jesus. So inevitably they gave him one of their hardest questions. So this is not an easy one for us either. And the question was, is it okay to divorce for any and every reason? Not for specific reasons. They didn't ask him about, you know, the particular case of this or that. It was a generalized thing. And notice that Jesus responds initially with a retelling, if you like, of Genesis chapter 2, which offers a very sacred view of sex as an act of physical union, which brings spiritual union to becoming one. Now, As an aside, notice that there's an implicit rejection of polygamy here, too. A man will leave and be united to his wife, not to his wives. There's also a recognition that living with the in-laws is almost impossible. (laughs) Yes, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Multi-generational households are really hard. Just put that out there. (laughs) And I think the logic for Jesus is that if the union is formed by making love, then a way to break that union is also by making love with someone else. 
And there is a question, I think, as to whether or not this is a way or the only way to break that union. But I don't actually think that Jesus deals with that in this passage. That's why Jesus goes on and says, um, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. So no one should separate the united parties. Outsiders to the marriage should not be involved in breaking the union. But actually that's exactly what happens, isn't it? When one half of a married couple sleeps with somebody else. And notice it should not could. Let no person separate. Let no person be the cause of that breaking of the union. The Pharisees then, having asked about divorce without any, uh, for any cause, so effectively because of the whim of one side or the other of the partnership, then say, whoa, hang on a minute. We were told we should get divorced because Moses said so. It's biblical. And uh, Jesus recognizes that divorce is not God's ideal, as you see up here. But it's possible because we live in a fallen world. I think it's worth clocking here that that there's lots of the Ten Commandments. Here's a summary of them for you that we actually struggle with. And we struggle to keep all of them all of the time completely. And this is just a summary of the law. And that stuff on verse number seven there about do not commit adultery is one of ten. And yet somehow we sometimes put it up there along with not murdering uh, as the kind of two big things that call us out. But actually all ten of those were important to God. It's also worth noticing that um, Malachi at the end of the Old Testament has this from God. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, the covering of one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to yourselves and do not be faithless. Let's go back to that passage. Notice in passing... Too many bits of paper to deal with. There we go. Notice in passing then that um, there's a difference of opinion here. Notice the Pharisees say Moses commanded. Jesus says Moses permitted. Huge difference. Moses allowed it, says Jesus. The Pharisees say Moses commanded it. Therefore, we must follow what we're told. So Jesus is not saying you must get divorced if the marriage bond is broken. He is saying it's permissible. But presumably given the repentance and forgiveness passage of last week, it's preferable to repent, yeah, kiss and make up, if possible. Thus then, Jesus' summary, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Marries an... Another commits adultery. I think it underlines the 
Bible and Jesus view, if we just ignore the exception for a minute, it runs as whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. That underlines the Bible and Jesus view that two people become united in their spirits when they make love, and that's the fundamental difference between a married relationship and all other relationships. So, effectively, there's a separation of the legal status of married or divorced from the spiritual status of two become one or one being broken again into two. And so Jesus is effectively saying that at the point of one partner sleeping with somebody else, that's the point of breaking of the first marriage bond. So then the exception for adultery exception That stands to reason that if one party has already committed adultery and thus broken the bond of marriage, then in that case, so remarrying is not the start of adultery, that is the the initial committing of adultery, but the continuation of the same. So when divorce happens because of adultery, so spiritually the bond is already broken and nothing new happens when a person remarries. Now, I don't think for a moment that Jesus is saying the only reason you can get divorced is if adultery has happened. Just think about situations of abuse, of abandonment for a moment, and we'll come back to that. I think what he is saying is that if a couple get divorced, that legal action, and remember the question was about divorce for any cause, then whenever it is that one of that couple first sleeps with another person, then that is the committing of adultery, which is the physical or spiritual action of breaking what God has brought together. And it matters not whether that action occurs before or after the divorce. So the end of the reading, don't worry, this is not the end of the sermon, the end of the reading shows that marriage is optional. No one has to get married to start with. Choosing to live single, and yes, in Jesus' terms, thus without sex, is fine. Now, having said that about the passage, we need to set it in the context of first century Palestine, what the Pharisees were on about, whether there are other ways to break this bond, and so on, including what perhaps other New Testament writers had to say. And I think it's probably worth starting in terms of that kind of thinking about where were the Pharisees coming from here with Deuteronomy 24. And it's a a bit of a technical passage, but let me read it to you. Um, And I think this is what the Pharisees were sort of beginning to reference. Um, uh, Deuteronomy 24 then. Suppose a man enters into marriage with a woman, but she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her. And so he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out, out of his house. She then leaves his house and goes off to become another man's wife. Then suppose that the second man dislikes her, writes her a bill of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Or the second man who married her dies. Then her first husband, who sent her away, is not permitted to take her back again, to take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled. 
for that would be abhorrent to the Lord, and you shall not bring guilt on the land that the Lord your God is giving you his possession. In other words, you can have spouse A and then spouse B, but going back to spouse A is not allowed. Does that make sense? A, B, C maybe, but not A, B, A. But I think it's worth noting a few things here. Moses, and by extension God, absolutely commands that there's paperwork to back up the action. A divorce certificate becomes proof of freedom for the woman and gives clarity about any next relationship. Apparently, in other ancient Near East cultures, it was only really important people that ended up with a certificate of divorce. But this was something that was universal across the nation, that if you're going to get divorced, you get a certificate. End of. And actually, so that situation, that paperwork is the same, whether you're of education, whether you're of wealth, whether you're of class, that have no bearing. Every woman gets the same rights. So there's clarity and rights in this. I know it doesn't sound terribly helpful because there's nothing here about the cause. What we get is he finds something objectionable about her. It's rather vague. And I don't think, I don't think the passage is intended to convey the cause of divorce, but the actions that accompany the divorce. Does that make sense? So perhaps the Pharisees, though, I wonder, were trying to say that a man might find anything about a wife's behavior or looks to be objectionable. She might be too tall, too short, too wide, too narrow, too mouthy, too quiet, too... You get the drift. And I wonder if the Pharisees were saying that you could find anything objectionable if you set your mind to it, if you wanted a reason to get divorced... And so they were arguing, perhaps, that Moses offered a no-fault quickie divorce. Just write a certificate and off you go. And it's that view which, which Jesus challenges in his response in Matthew. Perhaps. Perhaps, though, a better passage to think about for grounds of divorce appears at Exodus chapter 21. Oh, no, hang on, let's go there. Exodus 21. Now... Again, read this carefully. It has some interesting moments to it. This is Exodus 21, verse 7 onwards. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, now just, you know, just don't go there for a moment about how abhorrent that is. Anyway, she is not to go free as, free as male servants do, but she does not, if she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, in other words, this is a potential arranged marriage situation, a man has sold his daughter to another man who has selected her for himself. But then if he changes his mind, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. In other words, he made a promise, I want to marry this one. And then he changes his mind. Now, in verse 9, if he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. Fair enough. You're not just some sort of married married, paid in, bought in help, son marries, it's a daughter. So if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one 
So this is the kind of question about polygamy. But anyway, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. And if he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. So I wonder whether we are getting somewhere to the heart of marriage in, in first century and before times of food, clothing, and marital rights. One of the difficulties, though, is the Hebrew word which gets used as marital rights is not used anywhere else in the Old Testament. So we have a difficulty in translation. What does marital rights mean? Some commentators want to use oil, for which I go, really? (laughs) But anyway, most others use conjugal rights or relations, but often I think there's an undertone of the right to become a mother. Others are more blunt and, and just translate it as sexual intercourse. So he must not deprive her of food, clothing, and sex. There's an echo, I wonder, or a parallel of this, at Hebrews, no, at Ephesians chapter 5. So have a look at this for me. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own body. He nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So the husband is called to love, but then there's something about nourishing, feeding, food, and tenderly caring, cherishing. Perhaps you could think of that as if you cherish your own body, you don't wander around naked. You put some clothes on, you clothe yourself, you keep your body warm. So perhaps there's an echo there of love, food, and clothing. But perhaps it stretches things a little bit. But a threefold element to a biblical marriage does get reflected in ancient Jewish marriage vows, where the the commitment, the promise, is to food, clothing, and bed. Bed uses a euphemism for what gets happens when people get into bed. And so you have the potential that all these are that, that those, well, however you phrase it, food, clothing, marital rights, or love, nourish, and tenderly care, it's worth noticing that these are, as it were, a joint adventure. So in a traditional, and note I word to use the word traditional, male earns the money way of doing marriage, so the food is funded by the husband, but is prepared for, prepared by the wife. The same way buying cloth is separate from making the clothes. And onwards, you, clearly, you need two to tango. So I think it's possible to think that acceptable causes of divorce are situations where food is withheld, where clothing is withheld, where sex is withheld. Now, you know, you could read 1 Corinthians 7 more, uh, not more, but, 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 you know, when you get home in light of this, you know, which is partly about not abstaining from sex except to, to pray and even then for a short time. Or slightly more broadly, you might think of grounds of divorce as being where where nourishing each other, tenderly caring for the other, or love is absent from the relationship. Notice again that each of these aspects are about how the couple relate to each other. It doesn't involve a third party, and in part is a decision of the will. 
So I choose to speak tenderly to my wife, or not. I decide to set up patterns that see the nourishment, the flourishing perhaps, of my wife, or not, and so on. So husbands and wives, I assume you want to stay married, in which case think about how you might love, nourish, and tenderly care for each other in body, mind, and spirit. Choose your words and your actions carefully to build up, to encourage, to enable the flourishing of the other. Remember that the bond of marriage is down to you two to maintain and strengthen. And now we seem to be a long way from the harshness of the caricature of no divorce except for the, in the case of adultery, which, as I think we've seen, wasn't Jesus anyway, but it came to be how the church understood it, even if the church riled at the situation. Here's a little insight from uh, Origen, who was uh, one of the early church fathers, about AD 200. Uh, he said that if a wife... Sure, if I've got this or not, no, I haven't. If a wife was trying to poison her husband, or if she deliberately killed their baby, then for the husband to endure sins of such heinousness, which seem to be worse than adultery or fornication, would appear to be irrational. I read that again. If a wife was trying to poison the husband, or if she deliberately killed their baby, then for the husband to endure sins of such heinousness, so of such greatness, which seem to be worse than adultery, will appear to be irrational. But let's not perpetrate a wrong caricature of what Jesus said anyway. Because actually I think Jesus wasn't talking about, in Matthew 19, a cause for divorce, but the spiritual side of what happens when we get divorced. Now, if you're divorced or widowed or single, then think about the freedom you have to devote yourself to God's work. Um, hmm, I've missed a bit. Okay. So Matthew 19.12, the very end of the, the, the passage, um, uh, runs like this. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are the eunuchs who have been eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. So there is, an, uh, uh, that then gets echoed in, in, for example, the end of 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul writes this. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please his wife. And so his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman and the virgin are anxious about the affairs of the Lord, so that they may be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please her husband. Now, I say this, not for, your, for, sorry, I say this for your own benefit, not to put any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and unhindered devotion to the Lord. So, for Paul, at least, singleness gave that opportunity, or gives that opportunity, for utter devotedness to the things of God. Now, here's the bit that I think is a little difficult, in case it hadn't been difficult enough. 
God is a remarried divorcee. Now, how do I get there? It's a long story. But first think of the covenant, think of the first covenant as a marriage contract between God and Israel. Think of some of those passages which talk about the love of God towards his people. And then notice this. Jeremiah chapter 3. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? There's an echo there of Deuteronomy 24 that we looked at. Would not such a land be greatly repleted, polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, says God to the Israelites. And would you return to me, says the Lord? Notice the echo of Deuteronomy 24 about not being able to return to the first love. Genesis 3, to, uh, Jeremiah 3, sorry, carries on um, with this, verse 6. Have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel. Now, let me pause a minute. Um, at this point, the people of God's people were separated into two countries, Israel and Judah. Israel was the northern kingdom and Judah was the southern kingdom. Uh, and so, um, just remember that. Um, have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, so that's the, land, the people who lived in the land in the north, northern kingdom of Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and played the whore there. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her false sister Judah, that's the southern kingdom, saw it. She saw all that, all that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her false sister Judah did not fear that she too went and played the whore. So God, clearly in Jeremiah's understanding, was once married to the northern kingdom of Israel and has now written her a decree of divorce. So God is a divorcee and God understands the pain of separation. The pain of finding that somebody loved you and now has found in this case, other things to love and to worship, idols for, for God. So if God is a divorcee too, and the terms from Deuteronomy 24 of not being able to be reconciled, having taken up with another lover, they come to an end with Jesus, who being in very nature God, then died and so in dying there was complete freedom from the bonds and provisions of the first marriage contract which includes around not returning to the first partner so then Israel as God's chosen ones are free to return under the guise of a new marriage that is the new covenant which we too are part of We've all seen already a conversation about how we as the church are the bride of Christ. So one way of thinking about it is that God is on his second marriage. He's remarried 
He's offered a new marriage terms, if you like, to us as his followers. This quote from Ephesians 5 helps us there, I think. It's a profound mystery, it ends. So clearly that question of God's marriages requires a sermon, or perhaps better, a book in its own right. But for us all, I want you to notice it turns on Jesus. Fully God, fully human too. He died so that we might have life. Welcome then to the profound mystery that is relationship with God. Amen. Tempted to ask, where does one go from that?